0: Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Are you ready for the next recession or have you diversified your income from writing? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and welcome to this week's edition of the Become a Writer Today podcast. And over the past few weeks, I've been reading a lot of articles about a possible recession and a slowdown in the economy. Now, I typically try to avoid reading too much news because I find it can put me in bad form. And I actually used to work as a journalist years ago. And I understand that bad news will sell more papers or get more clicks or listeners than good news. So it's pretty popular at the moment to talk about how things are slowing down and how there's a recession on the cards. And actually, during the last recession, I got a little bit burnt because I used to work as a freelance writer. And as you can imagine, if newspapers are earning less money, who's the first people they're going to get rid of? Well, it's freelancers. So during the last recession, my freelance contracts all dried up and I eventually dropped out of journalism. And of course, all of that was before I got into blogging and copywriting and even podcasting. But the experience has still stuck with me. And I'm always asking myself, how can I protect myself by diversifying my income? So what do I mean by diversifying income as a writer? Well, perhaps you could earn money from selling books. So that would be one income stream. Perhaps you could earn money from freelance writing. That would be a second. You could sell a course if you're a blogger. So that would be a third. You could run advertising on your site. That could be a fort. Or another type of income stream you could offer is by offering coaching or services to your readers or to clients. Or you could even take up ghost writing. So what I'm getting at is it pays to have different income streams so that if one income stream falls to the wayside, you don't suddenly find yourself out of work and struggling to pay the bills, which is what happened to me back in 2008. Thankfully, there are lots of opportunities for writers today to earn an income. But if you're just getting started, the strategy that I recommend is set yourself up on the social media network Medium, start writing articles there for free, see how they're received and then start putting your articles behind a paywall. All you have to do is click a little button in Medium and it'll go behind the paywall. And then if your articles get lots of views and shares, you'll get a little payment from Medium each month. And many Medium writers earn several hundred dollars a month from their articles. And of course, if you really want to take it to the next level, you could start writing for guest publications on Medium. And you can also use Medium as a way of growing your email list and then your blog. And then you can get into all the other strategies that I mentioned just a few moments ago. Now one man who didn't make the same mistake that I did during the recession is the award-winning magician and author Joshua Jay. He's written several popular books including Magic the Complete Course and he's also the founder of Vanishing Inc. That's one of the largest magic retailers in the United States. Now I recently interviewed Joshua Jay and in the interview he explained to me how writing and publishing books has helped grow his business and I was particularly fascinated by this because Writing books isn't the most efficient way to earn an income but it's created what he describes as a circle that's helped his business thrive. He also talks about the role of suspense and surprise in his acts and in any creative work and this applies to writers and he explains how he balances the business side of Vanishing Inc with his creative projects such as preparing for his acts and he gets into why we should all be preparing for the next recession today and how to do it. There's lots more we cover in the interview, but I started by asking Joshua why he decided to write several books about magic in the first
1: place. I I can't take full credit for doing this all by design, but I've created this really gratifying ecosystem where I write books. And those books result in book tours. And the publicity on those book tours put me on TV. And those TV appearances get me bigger shows. And those big shows get me runs of shows like Off-Broadway Run that I'm currently doing. And round and round it goes. So it's really interesting how they all feed against each other. I did a study, scientific study with the College of New Jersey. And this was just because I was curious to know how magic and science intersect. There was really no money in it. It was taking up a ton of my time. But now I'm on a university tour talking about the results that we found. And those university shows have garnered me some press and that press attracted the attention of some brands who are having me design commercials for them. So it all works in this really beautiful way where if I just follow my interests, everything tends to build on itself. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You sound quite busy for the way you described there. How do you organize your time? It's very difficult and you have to to love what you do. It's really funny to me when young magicians say like, oh, I I just really want to go full time because this nine to five job is killing me. The hours are so tough and I always try and tell them, you're going to work twice as hard if you do what I do than with your nine to five job you think is tough. I mean, I do not know many times whether it's a weekend or a weekday, because it makes no difference. My Sundays, I don't sleep in. I get up just as early. I have to work just as hard. And I stay up very late. I was up till 3am last night, working, writing, rehearsing. It's nonstop. But it's not work if you love it.
0: And you've been practicing magic since you were a child. Is that right? Yep. Seven years old. And at what point did it start to turn into a career for you?
1: Well, I mean that. I guess that would depend on your definition of career. I was performing. I was a busy children's show performer when I was eight years old. About a year into it, and I never forget. And I had an uncle. You know, my parents would usually take me to my shows, but on this occasion they were both busy, so my uncle took me around, and he drove me like on a Saturday to birthday party, to birthday party, to Cub Scout group, and. He said, uh, so what's been going on? I said, well, today I've got this show at the Wilcoffs and then I've got one down the street and then I've got this Cub Scout meeting and the first one's $25, the next one they're paying me $10, but I told him I'm only doing 10 minutes. And he said, boy, those three shows, you're making about 50 bucks this weekend, you're rich. And I said, I'm not rich, but I'm making a living. You know, I mean, even then I was professional, but of course I went to school, I went to university, got a degree and started traveling around.
0: And then when did you get into actually writing the books about your, your work today? So
1: at university, you have an option to do a senior thesis. And I did a senior thesis, which was advised by my professors. And my senior thesis was a new curriculum for magic. I observed that magic was taught in very old school ways. Books would contain 300 tricks, a paragraph each, very hard to follow, no theoretical underpinnings. So I wrote a book that was an entirely new curriculum for how to teach magic. And I moved to New York City after I graduated and I promptly sold that book to Workman Publishing. And it's now in six languages. It's been in about four printings. It's had a small edition, a kid's edition, a magic kit edition. And it is now, I'm pleased to say, used as the curriculum taught in schools in Germany, in South Africa, and lots of other places that teach magic. That's fantastic. Wow. Very impressive. Um... Yeah. It's, it's weird to have the curriculum I designed in my early 20s is like the curriculum used to, to teach these tricks.
0: So, What does the writing process look like for for you? Uh, do you come up with the tricks first and, and then write about them? Or is there some other process you follow? So,
1: I mean, that's a hard question to answer because it sort of depends on the project. I can tell you that when I'm writing for the public, well, the, the unifying theory of all of this is I, I really try and think like my reader. I try and think about how they would... Respond and how they would think about learning a magic trick. And it's cumulative. I'm a big believer in like you learn a skill, you learn an application. Then you learn the next skill, and the application uses all the skills you've learned up until that point. But basically, the way I look at all of my writing is answering questions. So this is really interesting. Magic's about answering questions. When I do a show, if you happen to like my show, you would come up to me afterward and you would probably have questions. And the typical questions I get are things like, how do you come up with this stuff? Or does that trick ever fail? Or how long did it take you to learn that? Could I learn something like that? So I've learned to know what the questions are that my show isn't answering and try to answer those things. Or if I write a book, I would listen very carefully to the editors because if they come back to me and they say, hey, I got a question, you teach this trick but you don't really teach where to perform it. Well, that's a question I needed to answer in the text. So I've got to go back in and find that. So I try and anticipate the way a spectator is going to think in a magic show. And in the same way, I try and anticipate the way a reader is going to think when I'm writing.
0: So a lot of your work involves collaboration and you have collaborated on Game of Thrones. Is that right? Could could you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So HBO came to me, I think it was after season two of Game of Thrones. And that's when they made their big transition to HBO Go, which is the way you can watch it on iPads. And so they said, we want to do a big ad campaign, basically saying you can now watch Game of Thrones on your devices, which was, you know, it's nothing to us in 2019. This was a big deal a few years ago. So I came up with all of the magic and then started in the commercial to make all these things come out of the iPad. So I pulled a sword out of the screen, and I, you know, did all these different things to sort of make, you know, I made it catch fire. I pulled a scroll out. You were saying you the fire came out of the device. Is that right? Or that was the? Yeah. Illusion? So I pulled a sword out, and then the sword caught fire. And then I touched a scroll to the screen where there was fire, and the, the scroll caught fire, and so on.
0: Oh, very good, very impressive. And I'm curious, do you see, you know, magic as? creative work, or do you see it as as another type of work? Creative work.
1: I think there are two sides to my job. There's the artistic side and the business side. And they always say, you know, it's a business. It's show business. That is very true. And I recognize that as my career grows and expands, I am more and more needed on the business side of things, but I am very uncomfortable in that role. That's a very reluctant role for me. What I want to be doing is writing, creating, testing, performing. So how do you balance the two? You know, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know that I'm always the best at it. I think that the two answers that I can come up with, which aren't exactly inspirational, but they're true, are number one, You got to be willing to basically work harder than you'd ever imagine. I mean, I don't ever turn off. The work stops when the work is done and it's almost never done. And then the second thing is you have to block out time. There just comes a certain point when I know my inbox is exploding. I know that our team, which is about 12 people, are in need of me for different things. But I will just literally turn it off and go, I've got to spend two hours rehearsing or building or developing and make the time for it.
0: And the activities that you've described there, rehearsing, building, and so on, is thats is that away from the internet and the computer and all those yeah, other demands on your time? Yeah, like in the room actually
1: doing it. Okay. And, and do, you, do, you, do you keep track of the amount of time you spend doing that? No, because again, it's results driven. I mean, I would say to you, any trick that would go in my show, we're about to put a new show in my New York off-Broadway show. And that trick... That trick has been in development six months, which I'm very uneasy about putting something so new in the show. And it will either get cut immediately if it's not testing well, or if it's testing so-so, which is about the best you can hope for. It gets serious development for 30, 40 minutes after each performance with the whole crew talking about it, brainstorming it, lighting it differently, different music. And the hope will be that it is a mainstay of the show and it stays in. Do you think your,
0: your work translates to other countries?
1: Other English-speaking countries is easier, although I just got back from a tour of, of uh, Great Britain and uh, I, didn't, I didn't make it up to... Well, I actually did one date in Scotland. I didn't do any in Ireland, sorry to say, but I've been there before. So this UK tour and then the last date was in Paris. And oh my God the difference of reactions between Paris and the rest of the UK is just two different cultures. It's so completely different. And um, it was 45 days over there and coming to Paris was like entering a different dimension because they're so much more expressive. It's not that the UK audiences weren't good, they were great, but they're so much more reserved and subdued compared to Paris, which was like, you know, hooting and hollering. And so, yeah, I would say they are all different. When I tour outside of English-speaking countries, I do a set that's much heavier on music pieces, and I do a set that's much less talking. I like that. I like that. So you're
0: tailoring your work for different audiences, basically.
1: Very much so. There, there are even tricks that I sort of can't touch. I wouldn't say politically because my work isn't political, but there are just certain things in places like China or Russia that I just wouldn't do because the themes of those tricks are just not going to be identifiable to maybe the audience as much. So are there other people that you would look to for
0: inspiration or for your creative work?
1: Yeah. There are, but surprisingly, there aren't as much magicians as there are other people who are doing interesting thing in their own fields. So it's it's much less interesting because I kind of see it as a dead end. I mean, I'm always really inspired if another magician does something wonderful or beautiful, but I don't want to copy him or her. I want to do my own thing. So I'm much more interested in like what did Steve Jobs do that's interesting and how can I be him for our industry? Or what did Jim Henson do in his industry that really turned everything on its head? And how can I do that for art? Those are more the questions that I ask. I'm, I'm inspired by people that revolutionize their own field and, and what lessons can I take and apply? What about your business, Vanishing Ink? Yeah. So that your listeners and readers know what Vanishing Ink is. Basically, magic is a wildly popular hobby. There's not a lot of professional magicians. I'd put it at well beneath 100,000 worldwide. Not a lot of people. But the hobby of magic is there are dentists, doctors, waiters, managers, every walk of life who come home from work and can't wait to get home and pick up a deck of cards and tinker. And we service the professionals, but also this huge body of amateurs. We have a ton of Irish customers as well. And so we're not just a magic shop carrying stuff, but we're also Creating. So I would invent tricks. We have a staff in China that can source those and prototype them and manufacture them. And then we put them out. And so it's a whole machine. We have warehouse in the UK, we have a warehouse in the United States. We have a marketing director, we have marketing efforts and campaigns, we have engineers in China manufacturing the stuff. And then we go to expos, conventions, magic clubs, and sell these tricks as well as online.
0: And just so I have an idea of the timelines. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Was it during the recession that you, you set up Finishing Inc because you wanted to diversify?
1: So sort of. I went to my best friend uh, who's now my business partner and he was working a job in website feasibility. So he was working for a, a data company doing IT work and he was a magician And he sort of said, you know, boy, I really want to spend my days doing magic, not just programming. And I said, that's interesting. I'm sick and tired of selling my ideas to other outfits and watching them make the money off my ideas. So we formed up and did this company. And um, then the the recession hit. And what we found was it was a a very recession-proof thing. I mean, Elements of my job are not recession proof. And I'm thinking about this a lot because I anticipate a a real slowdown coming up. We can talk about some leading indicators that I think magicians feel that the rest of the public doesn't always look at. But, you know, the things I observe happening now are things that happened before the last recession. So I do a lot of corporate magic. And of course, what's the first thing to go when you're a corporation and you're tightening your belt because your earnings aren't what they used to be? Well, you don't spend a hundred grand on the company holiday party. You spend half that. So now you don't get the ice sculptures and the magician and the MTV VJ and the sushi bar with a celebrity chef. Now you have to tell the magician, I'm sorry, we can't have you this year. Or last year we had you do two shows, and walk around Magic. This year, we just have to have you do walk around Magic. So first of all, I observed that happening. And secondly, you see a slowdown in, in sales with Magic because Magic for us is, you know for most of the amateurs, is disposable income. So we aren't seeing a total overall slowdown in numbers, but we're seeing a ramped up marketing effort for the same numbers. And so to me, that spells certainly not doom, but a potential slowdown. So anyway, to come back to your initial question, it was really lovely last time that I was able to diversify. And as my work on the very, very high end of New York corporate clients dried up a little bit, I was able to rely on the magic community and do more magic lectures. So for example, when I've toured with my lectures in Ireland, I've been to Dublin and Belfast. And both of those groups have clubs of over 100 magicians who pay for me to do a show and then teach my work. And that never dries up because those clubs hire magicians always and forever. So that was a great way to sort of get through that difficult time.
0: So how would you advise somebody who's engaged in creative work to prepare for the next recession?
1: I think that the key was that I had outlets that were under my control. So the guys that really suffered in the last recession were the guys that relied on calls from clients. They relied on work to come into their phone and their inbox. And those people really suffered because those things dried up. But I had two outlets that I just explained to you that didn't dry up because they're up to me. I went out and contacted Dublin and Belfast and said, Hey, I'm going to be in your area. I'm going to do a magic lecture. Let's negotiate a price and and let's put a tour together. I'm able to say, let's put out magic and market it to magicians and have them come to us. And that was all the difference.
0: Mm, I like that. I'm also curious about suspense and surprise in a creative project. So I'm sure for, for magic, that's key. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the importance of suspense and surprise in your work?
1: Sure. So I'm extremely inspired by Alfred Hitchcock. One of my signature pieces is dedicated to him and I talk about him. And of course, he was the one to pinpoint and codify for me that, you know, I kind of think of when I'm inventing magic, I kind of think of it as two big dials, right? Two big twisty dials. One is suspense and one is surprise. And you've got to twist them both because twisting one too much one way affects the other. You know, you would think that they're diametrically opposed. But if you have suspense, you can't have surprise because the suspense is for the expected outcome. But that's not true at all. Magicians find a way to balance suspense and surprise every day. And I think that great magic is a balance of suspense and surprise. And pinpointing what you give your spectators a peek behind the curtain about that they can be suspenseful toward, and what's better to hit them on the side of the head for the big surprise.
0: Hmm. I like that. Do you have an ideal early morning routine at the moment?
1: I don't. And I know that it's very trendy in business books to sort of say, This is what I do every morning. I start with yoga, then I make myself a protein shake, and then I do this. And I mean, that, that works for people, that's great. But I thrive on the individuality and variation that my job that I've carved out for myself provides. I love that three days ago, I woke up in Paris and did a show. And the next day I woke up and flew home to New York City where I live. And the day after that, I packed up my suitcase and came to Ohio and started to prepare for a talk I'm giving called How Magicians Think for Harvard University. Every single one of those days was a different way to wake up. One day I slept in, one day I was up at dawn. One day I was in a beautiful city. The other day I'm in the countryside and I don't have a routine. And that's what makes the job so wonderfully exciting. I mean, I don't know if it's clear to you how much I love what I do, but I just really love that variation. You know, I wake up sometimes and I'm on a gig for HBO and I wake up other times and I'm doing the eighth show of the week in my own theater in New York. It's just, it's a thrill.
0: Yeah, well, and do you take any time off? Because you sound like you work pretty hard.
1: Yes and no. I I usually take off a full month in the summer. I'll show you before we get off the phone. My family lives on a lake and I come here to kind of decompress and I don't take any work in our slowest month, which is usually June. But the other thing is that I always cushion my shows with days off in interesting places because I love to travel. So that's my other passion. So I had Two nights in Paris, I was working, and three nights I had to just explore and, and take inspiration, and I did. And I pictures of things that I'm going to become magic tricks, and you know, when I go to South Africa later this year, I will take a few days for safari. So you know, I get my good times in too.
0: So, and finally, how do you help clients or people who you're working with understand the value of what you do? It's a good question.
1: Let me tell you a story. So. I told you, I I think that I worked with the College of New Jersey on this survey of what magicians can learn from laymen through these science experiments about our craft, because most magicians don't approach what they do with any kind of market research. And I thought, that's silly. Every other walk of life, they have data that they can go back to. We have no data. So I created a very large study and paper with the College of New Jersey in collaboration with professional statisticians and scientists and we were able to put together really, really strong data. And one of the many things, like 40 things we tested that I want to tell you about is this. We would show people videos with an A and a B test. In video A, we say to the viewer, please watch this magic trick. It's a magic trick of me doing a trick. And to group B, we said, please watch world champion magician Joshua J. do what is known as one of the most difficult card tricks in the history of magic. We show them the exact same trick. So the only difference is video one is not framed with any kind of expectation or introduction. And video two shows a level of difficulty and a level of peer review that I am a former world champion. And in both cases, we would ask the viewer to watch the trick, to rate the trick, how much they enjoyed it, and then to take a guess at how it was done. And fascinatingly, people viewed the trick with more enjoyment and better ratings with that introduction. In other words, they felt like if they were seeing somebody good, they would enjoy it more. And this is fascinating. They actually guessed less correctly than group A who were given no sort of introduction. So it's almost as if people, when they think they're watching an expert, they surrender their good judgment and just enjoy the trick and aren't able to guess as well. So when you ask, how do you impart your value to clients? There's a few things that I do, but one of the new ones that I discovered, and I'm happy to share this with all the magicians and people in the world is, clients used to say, how do you want to be introduced? And I would just say, I don't know, just bring them out with a big round of applause and that'll be enough. I want them to know that I fooled Penn & Teller on Fool Us, that I've appeared recently on The Tonight Show and James Corden Show, that I have won the World Championship of Magic because these things add value to my show. They really do. It's not about ego. I could care less what they say. I just, I want them to enjoy the show in the best way that they can.
0: It sounds like you're building suspense through setting a context.
1: That's right. That's a good link back. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but it absolutely does build suspense because then they want it fulfilled. Hmm. Where can
0: people find more information about you, Joshua, and your work?
1: Um, Anywhere, uh, any of the outlets. So Vanishing Inc., JoshuaJ.com, all those places. It was great to speak to you today great. Thank you so much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join, and I'll send you a free email course.
1: Thanks for listening.